0: As far as I was concerned, I wasn't put on this earth to be here. I was just put on this earth as a mistake. To all of a sudden be wanted, it made you feel that every time you went in there, you wanted to look good. They wanted to know about your life. It was just something else.
1: It was great because you used to get the bus to Greenwich from Lewisham, yeah, start off at the Rose and Crown, or the Gloucester, and that was a great time because you, you troll between the two pubs. They're literally only 50 yards apart, aren't they? And so you see everyone in one. And oh, I'll see you in a bit, and you see me in the other one. And it's it almost like a soap opera, same people but in different different combinations and different pubs, you know. And then you yeah, know you see a bit of of show at the, the Georgian Dragon, see the drag act there. That would be about 10, 11 ish, and then you know a bit of a a boogie at Castle Stonewall sort of thing. Yeah. Or oh, yeah, if you really want a big night, end up at the. Uh, Queen's Arms, you know, because there would be a lock-in there, you know.
2: In the 80s and 90s, you could have a big gay night out in and around Lewisham. There were that many LGBT pubs. All of the Lewisham pubs from those days have since closed. For this first episode of Where To Now The Sequins have gone, we've been speaking to people who remember those lost gay bars about what they were like and how they changed their lives.
3: Every week in the pubs, you used to get all the local gay papers. Now on the back of these papers, there's always a listing of all the pubs that are around. But anyway, so we, oh, there's one in Lewisham, the castle. And we thought, well, it's only a bus ride, Roy. We might as well go. So they get all doled up, pop into the castle, and, well, that's where history was made. <laughs> It was a magical place. There were so many different things that, that were going on. I mean, I say it was magical, you know, and 27th of February, 83, was because that's when I met Wally, my life partner. There he was at the bar. That was February. He was there in a vest. A bit hairy. I'm not really that keen on hairy, but. Mm. Had a ponytail, it was a very thin ponytail, I plaited, just like one dread. Found out he'd just come back from India. I yanked his ponytail and said, Oi, can you let me get in the bar? And at the end of the night, I said, Well, if you've got a shirt and a tie, I'll come back. Which he managed to find, which is quite surprising for Wally because I mean, Wally was the sort of like the life and
4: soul of the party. Everybody loved Wally. Some venues had a gay night, the castle had a gay bit, and so you had to walk through the front part of the bar, which was the straight section, and we're talking Catford here, to get to the gay section at the back. So to run this, Gamut of eyes. The one time that I was not shouted at, we were not shouted at when I went in there. I just aware that we were being looked at. It was like walking through like a, a haunted house when the pictures and the frames, like the eyes just move as you're walking through. You came in,
3: and there was a glass, or maybe a wooden paneling, to sort of like separate the two with a little doorway, but. The thing that's always got me is that if you were in the straight bar and you wanted to go to the toilet, you had to go to the gay bar. Now obviously that causes a bit of fun for the customers. You know, are we going to get touched up? Because this is what they were all saying, or this is what all their friends were saying. Oh, don't go in there, mate, you're going to get touched up. You know, get, oh, you know, occasionally you say people would come in. You know, one week they'd come in and they'd have a couple of beers at that end. The next time they'd come in, they'd be in the middle of the bar. And the third week, they're down our end. So it was a way of slowly introducing people. It was just sort of like, oh, I'm going to the castle. Oh, well, yeah, it's a Wolfter's pub, but it's got a great pool there. Oh, and you know I like my pool. <laughs> so, you know, they had an excuse. It was rough. You wouldn't go in there with your Gucci shoes, but that's way, Because it gets stuck to the carpet. It was a pub where the landlord wanted to make money. So there was things that not necessarily were 100% kosher. It was struggling. It was a pub that was struggling. And it really needed sort of like the help that it got. And with having the gay community. And the gay community at that time sort of like flourished because that was a time of gay people coming out and going out to different places. And they I say, obviously, in them days, there was obviously less places
0: to go.
2: The castle may have been rough, but it was a place that changed people's lives.
0: I was adopted from the age of four and I was in the care system pretty much straight away. My mum had five children already and she was in a bedsit. So It was pretty overcrowded from what I gather but she was told really by social services to put me into care temporarily till she got bigger accommodation but when it actually came to it it just seemed more sensible for me to stay with the foster parents that I was with. Now they was white Jehovah's Witnesses very well thought of in their congregation and my dad he was my idol he he was an elder I used to go everywhere with him we used to knock on the doors and everything set in the watchtower and awake and all that but with Jehovah's Witnesses there are a lot of rules so there was no birthdays there was no Christmas I used to find that hard and plus being brought up in a white family I used to find hard because we were in the the early 70s, I was getting bullied a lot at primary school, regularly being called nigger and spat, and balls kicked at my head and things like that. So it, it, it wasn't a good place, and it didn't get any better at secondary school either because I was bullied there as well for being black in a white family. And I was bullied by black girls actually. So, pretty much all my life, I'd always felt that I didn't feel wanted or I didn't feel, you know, accepted anywhere. I kind of had feelings that I could be interested in women. But, you know, I wouldn't have dared told my mum, I adopted mum, because, well, she would have thrown me out. My mum always said that gay people should be burnt um, at birth. So it was never a discussion. My dad died when I was 12 years old, and I never got over his death so life was very very difficult and then eventually when I started working one of the places that I stayed at for a long time was Al Price Music and my friend one of my friends there she was gay but I used to act really silly whenever she came past me and things I used to act like really horrible like really homophobic like if I had to go past her to go and get some tapes or CDs I'd kind of go out of my way so that I didn't go near her as I went past her because in my mind remember my mum always brought me up that gays should be burnt at birth anyway one day we were talking behind the till and she said to me what are you doing later on so I said oh I think I'll go for a game of bingo so she said I'll come for a game of bingo with you if you like if you come for a drink with me so I said well, I don't know, and I'm denied. So I said, well, where are you going? She said, the castle, which is opposite. So I said, "Um, I ain't going in there. So she said, oh, no, no, come in, please. I'll go with you if you come with me. So we made it a deal. So I went to bingo, had a game of bingo. And then she said, right, we're going to go over to the castle now. Well, I was absolutely shitting myself because I thought this pub looks rough. And to top it all, when you went in there, it was rough because you had all these people at one end that were kind of just really hard, like proper hard, and playing around a snooker table. And then you looked down the other end, and there was all these really camp people. And it was like, what? You know, and the pub was very big. So anyway, we went up to the bar, and there was this this crazy man that was behind the bar that come up to me on a pair of skates. I thought, what is this place? And he come over to me and he went, Oh, oh, you're so pretty. And I said, oh, I said, you look like Andy Bell. And he did. He looked like Andy Bell out of Eurasia. I said, what's your name? And he said, my name's Cinders. And from there, me and Cinders got a wonderful friendship that was never ever to be broken. There was a guy that was playing on the well he was the DJ. He used to play some right classics. Well, one of the classics that he played was I Am What I Am by Gloria Gaynor. And as he played it, I noticed that all the gay people, no matter what they were doing, put down their drinks. They all got up. They all got each other. And they all joined in a great big ring. And they said to me, come on, come on. And I came over and we all joined hands and we all sang that song all the way through. And I just thought, wow, I want to be a part of this place. This is who I am. Did I tell my mum, my adopted mum? No. She knew. She picked up over the years that I was gay, but it was never really discussed. I had a lot of issues with her. In the end, I separated myself completely from her because she was always telling me I was bad, always telling me I was never wanted. She kind of really mucked up my head, if you like. But one thing's for sure, it made me turn into kind of this black diva overnight because the people in this place used to make such a fuss of me that they made me feel that this has always been my home. And they used to always say to me, this is your home now. And I used to love that. It gave me confidence that I'd never had before. As far as I was concerned, I wasn't put on this earth to be here. I was just put on this earth as a mistake. So to all of a sudden be wanted, it made you feel that every time you went in there, you wanted to look good. You know, they wanted to know about your life. It was just something else.
1: I think probably the castle that was the one that, I loved. You know what I mean? It was like it was a good local feeling there. It was just people sat around on tables, smoking in those days, smoking drugs even. You know what I mean? It was like, and people just got on. It was like good fun, although there were fights <laughs> yeah. nearly every other night. Something, yeah, it's, it's someone had probably looked at the wrong person or or whatever over the time, and you yeah, know it would be like some sort of. Slappy fight kind of going on. Yeah, it was usually over as soon as it started. You know what I mean? It wasn't huge fights, but it'd be like a couple of broken glasses. And you think, okay, we'd all move down this end of the of the bar, you know. But um, that that kind of gave it an edge, you know, which kind of made it exciting, you know. Yeah, yeah, I liked it. Yeah.
3: No, I mean, really. I mean, I suppose in some ways the castle was a bit of a shithole, but I mean, <laughs> it was a nice shithole, and people liked it. And uh, say it, it was just, and also. I liked it because the fact is that they had straight guys in there. There was all sorts in there. I mean, there was a bus driver that used to dress up in females' clothes. It was punks. And say it basically got the dregs of the society.
0: There was this lady that ran the pub when I first started going in there, and she'd been the landlady for years, and the gay women and the gay men idolised that. And her name was Dorothy. And her and her husband used to run it. She was like the mother of the castle. And the strange thing was, when she finally retired, the pub went downhill. And anybody that took the pub over and tried to run it always had to close it. And when Dorothy died as well, that was the day the pub got closed down. So it was kind of like a spiritual thing almost, like a spirit was in that pub, definitely.
2: The castle was taken over by Joe Thompson. And it became Stonewall's nightclub, and later 286, because it was at 286 Lewisham High Street. Before taking on the castle, Joe ran the Queen's arms, a few minutes' walk up the hill.
5: I was totally unaware that there was a scene in Lewisham, until my housemate, who worked as a postman, told me about it. Now I suspect my housemate was bi, but he never really talked about it. And I thought, really, there's this place in Lewisham, and he said it's called the Queen's Arms, and it's a gay pub. And you know, he was talking quite openly about it. So I wandered into the Queen's Arms and found, oh, this is not only is this a gay bar, it's in Southeast London, and it's quite friendly. And that's how I met the whole community. By that point, I already made up my mind that I wasn't bi, but I was gay. But how to act on the gay scene was still, how to navigate the gay scene, how to take note of the way people acted, the codes, if you like, of the scene, was still quite difficult. My boss had taken me to a pub in Earl's Court and I remember walking in there and there were all these guys in leather and it was just too much. Firstly, they were all big guys. They were all older than me. And I wasn't actually aware that there was such a thing as a leather scene until then. So it was a little bit too much, too quickly without, I think what I was missing is a mentor. And I have to say that at that particular period of time, things like pride were mentioned but they weren't as big as they later became. But I couldn't see me in any of those things. Whenever I saw those on TV, they were all white. And they were mainly male, too. There were very few women on those images, that the media coverage. And to be honest, even in pubs in central London, you never saw black or Asian people on the scene. So I I struggle with that a lot. I felt an oddity on the scene. Queen's Arms in Lewisham was quite different. And I think that was because Josie, who ran it, had this Irish background. Like, you know, he would always be closed for Good Friday. He was very keen if somebody died on like having a special occasion or whatever. And I think it's his own immigrant experiences that came through in the way he ran the pub so he saw the pub as a place for minorities and that really came through there were more women as well in lewisham so you got this sense of this is a normal place this isn't like a sectioned off community It's not a bubble. It's just normal people who happen to be gay or lesbian or trans or whatever they want to be. And actually, nobody actually asked you, like, are you this, that or the other? Nobody boxed you in. And that, I think, was its appeal.
2: Josie, or Joe, the landlord, was very much at the centre of the pub, and he created his own little family there.
6: When I was younger, I used to drink in a pub in Camberwell called the Father Redcap. I'd got myself into a bit of trouble, and basically, one of my friends used to work for Joseph Thompson at the Queen's Arms. My friend had gone to Joe and told Joe that I'd got myself into a bit of trouble and needed somewhere to live and needed a job, basically. I knew Joe and Mrs. Norris and Rose Garden because they used to come to the Father Redcap occasionally. Me and Joe didn't get on too well, but you know I got on with um, Rose Garden and Mrs Norris.
2: Rose Garden and Mrs Norris were often at the Queen's Arms. Mrs Norris worked behind the bar, and Rose Garden started her drag act there.
6: My friend organised a meeting with Joe. He asked me what the situation was. I explained to him that I was in trouble, and I needed a job and somewhere to live. So Joe took over legal guardianship of me from the age of seventeen until I was twenty-one. He provided me with a job at the time because I was still under 18 I couldn't work behind the bar but it was collecting glasses and you know doing stuff around the house and stuff like that and then when I was 18 he gave me a job behind the bar I used to live above and then when he um, had a spare room in his house that he used to own around the corner I then moved into the house around the corner and I lived there right up until I was about 18, 19 Joe's words were he thought I was a very bulshy little lesbian um, and that I was trouble, but as I said, because I got on so well with Mrs Norris and Rose Garden, you know, they convinced him to give me a try, basically, and within a year of me being under his care, he was then like, I, you know, for me to call him daddy, and that's where the father and daughter relationship became, you know, that's why everyone now, I mean, I'm 45 now. Everyone knows me as Joe's daughter and he always referred to me as his daughter, even his family, you know, their aunts and uncles and they know me as Joe's daughter. That initial step that he took, that leap to give me a chance, worked and you know, I'm not the only person that he'd done that with over the years. There was many bar staff that he had that he took on because they'd either had problems at home or they needed work and yeah, he always gave them that opportunity. He didn't need to, but he's changed my life, you know, he turned my life around. It could have quite easily have gone the other way.
4: I loved the Queen's Arms. It, it must have been the smallest gay bar in the world. It was like being in somebody's living room. You know, this sort of central bar with a sort of horseshoe bar going on around it. The music was not blasting out, because what's the point? It's tiny. So, it became a lovely place to go and chat with people. It was a very chatty bar, a very family bar. And they did you know, quiz nights going on there, fiercely competitive at times, really competitive, which is always good to see. And I think it did have flock wallpaper, <laughs> But it was just, you, you, so you were felt like you were in your granny's front room, but there was something very comforting about
5: that. It was clean and jolly and so welcoming. I would always find somebody that I knew in there. There was this this really nice guy that always drank red wine and had these two beautiful dogs. And he used to call them his ladies. And, you know, there were Afghan hounds with these long pointed nose and the hair was always beautiful and they always stuck their nose up. And they really did look like posh ladies. But there were people like that that were... They were just nice people that you could just sit next to them and have a chat about almost anything. If somebody new came to the door and a Polish guy came through the door once and we didn't know at the time he was Polish. And uh, this guy kind of hang around and didn't order a drink straight away. So Josie said, well, Cliff, you know, you've lived all over the world. Go and talk to that guy and find (laughs) out who he is, you know. What's he doing here, (laughs) you know? So I said, okay. And I started talking to this guy and he actually ended up being my lodger for three years. And I went out to Poland and stayed with his family. That's the sort of thing that was happening. It, It was never a kind of closed door. Josie would find somebody to break the ice, somebody to approach the new person through the door. So you never actually felt like I shouldn't be here. Somebody would always talk to you.
6: If someone walked in that looked like they was going to cause trouble or that wasn't in the gay community, it wasn't saying that straight people wasn't allowed in there, but very much everyone's eye was on them. And it was like, right, if you're going to have a drink in here, this is a gay pub, this is you know, our safe space. you will follow our guidelines. If you don't like it, then please leave. So we felt safe Mm there, you knew. And, you know, if you was leaving, the Queen's Arms, Joan would stand at the door and watch you stagger down the hill, you know, because most of us lived within the vicinity of it.
5: I enjoyed the (laughs) lock-ins. That was always great fun. (laughs) Lots of drinking. There was actually never sex in the pub which uh, I think a lot of people thought that because we would say lock in and they would think, Oh, what's going on in there? But Josie would never allow that. So it wasn't that sort of pub and there wasn't, there wasn't a dark room or anything like that. So it was all about board, but we would get very, very drunk. And if there was a drag queen, then the show would go on. At which point little legs and myself would get onto these two tables beside the stage and do this kind of formation dancing. So we were both little guys and they would be like, get your shirt off, get your shirt off, (laughs) yeah, yeah. Yeah.
6: The police, the police used to leave places like Joe alone because it was contained. They knew that there wasn't trouble, there wasn't punch-ups coming, you know. occasionally (laughs) there was the odd knock on the door (laughs) and the the side door would open everyone would run upstairs into the kitchen and into the front room because the police have turned up at two o'clock in the morning you know there'd be a couple of people there and yeah that's all that's here and they go okay we're just making sure we saw your lights on and joe would say no we're just having a private drink let the police and we'd watch the car go down the hill to the roundabout and it was like, oh, you could all come down there and he have got 30, 40 people that have all been run upstairs into his kitchen and into his front room, <laughs> carry on drinking. But the police, they turned not so much as a blind eye to it, but they left it alone because they knew there was no trouble coming from it. And I think they'd rather people be there and be safe and contained than, you know.
0: Joe was the nicest person ever. He had a big heart he used to always put on the best acts, Jamie Watson, Jesse Biscuit, Maisie Trollette, he had all the top, Jackie Plunkett, now on a Sunday Jackie Plunkett up there, I was in heaven because I should be singing all the blues and you know knocking back her drinks and oh I can just see her now I can just see the atmosphere now it's just a fantastic place to be you couldn't wait to get down there on a Sunday afternoon to see the act you know
6: when it comes to entertainment the cost was never a a question and you know for a small pub you'd have people squeezed in like sardines you know stood at doorways blocking doorways stood on stairs you know he had that stage built at the front of the bar you even had the canopy taken off the bar so people could see from all angles yeah it was South East london premier entertainment venue here Josie Thompson says, oh, welcome to the Queen's Arms.
4: He had this incredible voice, like Peggy Mount. It just was really down in his gut. And his, sometimes his introductions to the act would sometimes last about half the length of the time that the act were going to be on. Because he liked to big up the Queen's Arms to say, what a welcoming bar it was. Now we have the top cabaret here. And you're sitting there, can we, can we go on now, please? My most memorable night of doing cabaret at the Queen's Arms was with a singer called Jamie Watson. And we did a jazz set together, but a predominantly jazz set together. We did it for the first time at the Queen's Arms. And to see people standing there and really listening to an old song by Rogers and Hart, he was too good to me, or mixed into a Backrack and David song, a house is not a home. So you're presenting this medley of what it's like when a relationship comes to an end. And people were openly weeping because they were uh, in the venue, which was sympathetic to Cabaret, and was an integral part of the evening. People just think, oh, I'm going to just listen to this song that I don't know. And once you listen to words written by Lorenz Hart and Hal David, this ain't chirpy, chirpy, cheap, cheap. These are great lyrical songs that tell our story. And the fact that Jamie was singing, he was too good to me. It was a gay man, I'd like myself, in trousers, singing specifically about being a gay man. And that's quite rare, even now, for a male singer to sing he, 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 he. Now, even Elton John was singing she for heaven's not
5: so Josie's thing was, you're barred! Yeah. Anything um, that Joe yeah. didn't like. <laughs> yeah, Too, drunk dropped, Too something. drunk, dropped something. I remember when the time when I was,
7: never got barred. Oh, I did, when I walked into the door one time, and it was like, when I walked in, <laughs> it was you like, into you door. were right to my door, and I had to check it to make sure it's all right, and then, anyway, you're barred. And I was like, but I don't remember. He's like, you don't remember my house. <laughs> I also remember Christine one time, because it was the pub quiz, and I think Joe was reading the questions out. Chris was a bit pissed and sort of fell asleep. So he was like asking the question, like, in 1955, who was then heard this like <laughs> from Christina had fallen asleep with the head on the bar. So he was like, in 1955, who was that Christina barred? Who was that? <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> used to do
0: that. Because yes. I'd work Chris, you've been barred. She's like, oh, fucking hell. <laughs> Up at the Queen's Arms, everybody used to be barred all the time. I only used to have to look at Joe and he'd be like, you're bad, get out, you're bad. So I used to go down the Roebuck until Joe used to let me back in.
4: The Roebuck, I did did go to a few times and that was... Again, you just had to steal yourself a little bit when you went into the Roebuck because everything that Queen's Arms wasn't, the Roebuck was. Queen's Arms, very cosy, very friendly, very gentle. The Roebuck, he always felt that something was about to happen and it wasn't going to be necessarily pretty. It just had this slight tension going on there. Not between the fellas, I have to admit. It tended to be between the women. You know, and that's not being <laughs> misogynistic. It, was just, it just had that vibe that if anything was going to kick off, it would usually be accompanied by a pool cue. And um, words would be said... And they'd be above an alto key.
0: (laughs) There was a lady, God bless her, she's dead now, but her name was Jeannie Cox. And she used to go in the robot every day. She much loved Lady. She used to come in, have a few drinks, and then she'd go home. And um, she used to like playing pool, love playing pool. And she used to always like people to go and play with her. So she'd say to me, Mask, do you want to come and have a game of pool? I'd be like, in a minute, Jeannie. Well, now, so I'd go over and I'd have a game of pool with her. (laughs) And if I beat her, she'd chase me round the pool table with a stick.
5: (laughs) Ooh.
1: (laughs) That that was a a seedy place, really. It was like, yeah, it it smelled. smelled, The first thing that got you was the smell. It smelled like like your worst public convenience, really. It had the more kind of the rent boy kind of... Side to it, you know what I mean? It was like it—it it was very '80s in decor, you know. It closed what about ten years ago, maybe, or maybe a bit longer. Anyway, it went to be the Phoenix and closed, and yeah, and it, it still had the same decor, you know, like that kind of piney kind of pinky grey stuff, and it really got grimy and horrible. The great thing about it though was downstairs was a disco and it would stay up until 4 o'clock in the morning, yeah. You know, and so yeah, when all other pubs have failed, you can always go there for a, for a last, a, a last uh, you know, a, a late night drink, you know, so, yeah.
2: The Roebuck, or Phoenix as it became, was just outside Lewisham Shopping Centre. It got knocked down when they redeveloped the town centre. There were more LGBT venues down the road in Deptford.
1: When I first came to Lewisham, there was a group called the, the Gay Men's Drama class. It was an adult education class run by um, Ilya, you know, in the London Education. It would be 88, I think, 87, 88, that kind of time. And we used to just scream about, you know what I mean? It was so much fun. And I remember there was a, a gay disco at the Albany, and um, the guy who, who ran the class also set up that disco. And <laughs> one day, I don't know how, we all, we all went round this flat and we all dragged up. Like like, in the most sort of, you know, charity shop drag. It wasn't particularly good. It was just sort of like slung together drag, and you know, we all put makeup on each other and things like that. There was about, what about ten of us in all, and we just paraded on Deptford High Street in drag in the sort of late afternoon, like walking up. And I just remember it as a really kind of happy moment, sort of thinking, yeah, we're here. We're we're walking to this disco, you know.
2: Also in Deptford, on Deptford Broadway. There was the Dover Castle.
1: That was a fun pub. It was like it was edgy, and it, the Deptford Dykes used to drink there. You know what I mean? And they were they were a force to be reckoned with. You didn't want want to argue with them. I think they were motorbike loving Dike kind of people who played pool, and you know they were very much your Butch dyke, if you like, I remember seeing drag acts there like Adrella and. Yeah, maybe even Lily Savage there. I don't know. I remember seeing Adrella there a few times. And it was one of those bars where, you know, the drag queens would be on and they could walk round and chat to everyone and, you know, get everyone involved and things, you know what I mean? It was, yeah, it was a fun time until it exploded. <laughs> you know, it's like... <laughs> <laughs> there it was a gas explosion. No one was killed, great, you know, but, yeah, you know, whether it was an insurance job or whatever. But this was early on. This was kind of probably... Maybe early 90s, I'd
7: say, you know.
2: Up in New Cross, there was the Goldsmith's Tavern, which back in the 80s was a late night gay pub.
7: I remember going into the Goldsmith's Tavern, I think it was about 1986. I remember it having a sort of like one of those peephole front doors when somebody would knock on the door and then somebody would open the, the peephole to have a look out to see who was trying to get into the pub. They'd open it, have you would some some eyes peering out to check you out and then the door would open and let you in if they liked the look of you. I think that the peephole was there to scream people, just to make sure you weren't getting troublesome people trying to get in, because it it was a late night boozer, as it were, so people would go there after the other pubs had closed at 11 o'clock.
2: By the late 80s, it had become a mixed pub with a cabaret space in the back room.
1: Oh, Goldsmiths Tavern was great. It's where Vic Reeves started, you know, and um, so they had cabaret nights as well as, you know, like something different each night. I think Thursday nights might have been the gay night. First time I went there, I was... <laughs> I think it's the first time I saw a male stripper in London. <laughs> I was chatting to my mate, like, on a, we were on the bench, you know, chatting away. The stripper was taking ages taking his clothes off, so you kind of got bored. You think, Oh, come on, get, get to the exciting bit. So I was chatting away to him, and um, next thing I knew, there was a foot on either side of me, <laughs> and, this, and this, this package is so slapping against my face. <laughs> I was like, what, do I do? what do I do? It's very funny. It's very funny.
2: It wasn't all leather thongs and slapstick, of course. In our second episode, we'll find out how these venues supported LGBT people through tough times, and the impact their closing down had on the community. Where to Now the Sequence Have Gone is a Bijou Stories avant-gardening production. It's been made as part of In Living Memory, A People's History of Lewisham, with support from We Are Lewisham, London Borough of Culture 2022, Untold Stories, an initiative from the Mayor of London, the London Borough of Lewisham and the Heritage Fund. This episode features, in order of appearance, Mars Tanner, Rick Stableford, Jeff Murray, Ian Elmsley, Cliff Pereira, Sarah Titer and Paul Green. It was produced and presented by me, Rosie Oliver.